Welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi and Monsignor Jeffrey Steenson. Hello, Monsignor. Hello, Marcus. Good to see you. It's good for you to join us today. We're picking up where we uh, paused last week in Book 4 of uh, Against Heresies. We're in Section 6. Before we jump in, I just wanted to make a comment, Monsignor. I, was, I don't often listen to the program after we've done it probably should, so in case we have to correct any things that we've said. And I know you speak infallibly, but I certainly don't. So, um, uh, But I listened a little bit last week, and I, I pictured myself, if I were still a, a Presbyterian pastor, listening to what we said, and I could almost hear myself saying, well, you bunch of dummies, everything you're saying is just in the Bible. Everything you're saying is just in the Bible. And you know what I'm saying? We're really emphasizing that you, we can't know the Father except through the Son and all that as if it was, you know, uh, a really neat idea. And the truth is, it's just in the Bible. Well, in some ways, that's exactly what we're saying, is that here we have in the second century this great teacher in the midst of chaos, which kind of sounds like what we're living in today, in the yeah. midst of chaos, drawing them back to the apostolic truth. Which was given to them by the apostles yeah. and their successors. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, again, in book one, I think it talks about, you know, Christ gave it to the apostles who then passed it on and it was recorded in scripture. And, and we, you know, this, and, and it says that that is the pillar and foundation of the church. And mm -hmm. in many ways, the reason I, we get excited about what we're talking about is that these are things that we've taken for granted 1,800 years later. 18, yeah, 1,800 years yeah, later. Yeah. But at the time, Irenaeus is fighting for it. And I just happened, we're going to get there, but before we jump in, I just happened to open the book to a section in, in book five that I have strongly underlined in chapter 20 in which... Um, you know, what is, we're going to get to this, but this is what Irenaeus says. He says, we must therefore fly from their views and watch very carefully lest at any time we be disturbed by them. This is on page 496. And we must fly for refuge to the church mm -hmm. and be trained in her bosom and be nourished up in the scriptures of the Lord, for the church is planted a paradise in this world. Feed ye on all the Lord's scriptures. I mean, so, I mean, that's, the, that's behind everything he's doing here, is that it's in the church where we find the continuation of the apostolic deposit that our Lord passed along. Matsun, you and I were talking before the program about the meaning of the phrase subsisin in, in Vatican II document. I mean, that's kind of what Irenaeus is saying, is that this truth that our Lord Jesus passed to his apostles 
is united and it's in the church, and there's where you'll find it. And that's what the council says, that that church established by Christ remains, continues, its being subsists in the Catholic Church. I thought you summed up Lumen Gentium perfectly on that one. Well, I've been wrestling with it a lot. Those, those little words subsist in. Yeah. So anyway, that's just kind of the background. Those of you that are not Catholic and wondering, who are these two old guys, you know, acting like they never read the stuff before? We're, we're emphasizing that the, because Irenaeus is fighting for it, is fighting for the truth. And we're going to begin at the bottom of page 324. We're in chapter 6, just ending up chapter 6. And we're going to look at continuation of an idea that he began on actually a couple pages before. We're going to take it all the way through the middle of page 326. We may end up reading most of it. But what he's emphasizing is this idea that if if you want to know the Father, you know him through the Son. Um, and what I'm going to do, being that I'm, I am but a layman, un, uneducated, and Monsignor, you are the... Um, <laughs> um, you went to a better seminary, Marcus. <laughs> <laughs> My point is, I'll do the reading, you do the commentary. Um, okay. Uh, but he begins, again, we're picking up where we left off last week. And you had read this last week, but I wanted to go back to it. He says, because from the beginning, the Son, abiding by the work of his own hands, reveals the Father unto all, whom the Father wills, and when he wills, and as he wills. Now, there's, boy, there's a lot in there. I mean, I could see the Lutherans and the Calvinists and the Methodists fighting over what that means. I remember those days. In other words, because from the beginning the Son, abiding by the work of his own hands, reveals the Father unto all whom the Father wills, and when he wills, and as he wills. And Marcus, I, you know, as we go forward in the next um, 30 pages or so of this thing, Irenaeus is going to be making this. He's that. That really is the heart of what's coming, is, um, is uh, that we shouldn't make too much of of the Old Testament law as a thing unto itself, or set it over against the freedom of the New Testament. But all of this is in God's economy of salvation, and it's the way He chose to reach out and bring humanity back to Him. Um, so, uh, you know, when that language, um, uh, whom the father, when he wills and as he wills, um, I mean, these dispensations are part of his perfect yeah. plan. That's why I, I so found myself drawn to, as I understood the Catholic perspective on scripture and, and these mysteries, is recognizing that the church has always emphasize the mystery of the both and rather than the either ors it, because it was the either ors that have divided Christians one from yes. another all through its her it's either this or that the sovereignty of God over the freedom of the will I mean here we are either or no it's both 
How's that possible? It's a mystery, which is why Irenaeus says earlier, God didn't tell us the answer to that mystery. We just accept that mystery. And he goes on, and therefore in all and through all is one God the Father and one Word and one Son and one Spirit and one salvation to all who believe in him. So we have a bit of the Trinity here, mm-hmm. right? All in one God, the yeah. Father, and one Word, and one Son, and one Spirit. There's one there. There's one salvation. And then there's the, the, the phrase, to all who believe in him. And I kind of emphasize that, and I come at it a little different, but I see this as, you know, later there'll be this big struggle about whether there's salvation outside the church or not, and, and that'll become a controversial issue for 1,800 years. But at this time in Irenaeus, the issue is you, you run to the church, as we read it in, in Book 5, because it's in the church where you will find the fullness of the truth. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's in the church where you won't get off in these other crazy ideas that he was fighting. All right. Now the next section, Monsignor, and and chapter seven, and almost all of chapter seven is is about this idea, expanding this idea that um, um, that we know about God the Father through the Son and only through the Son. And with the idea that Abraham and Simeon and the angels and Mary, all of these um, in the Old Testament, experienced the reality of God the Father through the Son. The Son was speaking to Abraham, to Simeon, the angels, even to Mary. Um, and it, there at the end of section one of chapter seven, it says, the joy of Abraham on the one hand, descending on those who were of his seed, watching and beholding Christ and believing him, and the joy on the other hand, mutually returning from the children back towards Abraham, even as he had desired to see the day of Christ's advent. Well, therefore, did our Lord give testimony to him, saying, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. What do you think about that paragraph, Monsignor? It it seems to me that that Christ revealing himself through the prophets to Abraham and, and then Simeon, the angels, and Mary all recognizing that we have this joy of Abraham being communicated down through the covenantal family and then being returned to him as Christ, as the prophecies of Christ are fulfilled. I think, yeah, I think, um, again, this is one of the, really key points in these early fathers is um, the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ as the word of God in the Old Testament. Um, uh, he, you know, just like that next, the next, uh, yeah, go ahead. In section two, that next sentence and first sentence in section two on page 325, um, not only for 
Abraham's sake did he say this, but in order to show that all who from the beginning knew the Lord and had foretold Christ's advent had their revelation from the Son himself, who's, um, who in the last times was made visible and passable. I, I think that is the great yep. message. You know, um, Marcus, you probably have um, somewhere on your, on your wall that icon of the Blessed Trinity of um, the the three angels that are appearing at the at the Oak of Mamre in uh, was it Genesis eighteen yeah. um, to Abraham, and I was that's always deeply fascinated me because that later on it was understood that those three angels were emblematic of of, of the three persons of the Trinity, but the earliest commentators on Genesis eighteen. Interestingly enough, I couldn't find anything from St. Irenaeus on it, but all around him, um, when they commented on that, it was Jesus Christ who was the principal (laughs) guest at Abraham's table, accompanied by two angels. Um, And the the idea is that um, the father, through everything, remains invisible, and it is his son that uh, has come. Yeah, the... Of course, the problem yeah. the, the 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 problem at the time when this was being written is how do you interpret the scriptures? Um, how do you take the types to apply? Does what's in the Old Testament go on to the New? Do we listen to you know all these different things? And his emphasis is this continuity yes. of yeah. the presence and the voice and the revelation of Christ from beginning to end. It's one and the same. And we're going to get a verse in a moment that's really going to emphasize that. Um, in fact, that paragraph, if you will, um, down on page 336, about the third one, mm-hmm. therefore. So here's a big summary. Him, therefore, we rightly declare to be known by no man save the Son, and to whomever the Son shall reveal him. But the Son makes revelation to all to whom it pleases the Father to be known, <clears throat> and neither without the Father's good pleasure nor without the ministry of the Son will anyone know God. And therefore the Lord said to the disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one cometh unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye have known him and seen him, whereby it is manifest that he is known by his Son and by the Word. Um, you know, this is very, if you will, emphasizing that the only way anyone can know God is if grace has awakened their heart and mind to the reality of God. It's not something we can come up with on our own. Right, we only know right. him if he's been revealed to us. If God has willed that, which is one of the reasons I think that the Catholic Church, specifically in the second half of the 20th century, became more open to ecumenism, because in a way it never really did before. It started recognizing, wait a second, there's people out there that know Jesus. You know, those they know Christ. Well, if they know Christ, then 
God revealed Christ to them. They're not just smart. I think of it every morning in the daily office when we, we sing a song by Isaac Watts. You know, what is the church doing singing a song by, by a separatist? You know, by a 17th century or 18th century, I forget, separatist in England. What are they doing? Because the only reason he knows Christ is because God willed that he knows Christ, gave him the grace. That's the foundation for our commitment to ecumenism. And, um, you know, just touching, too, again, on what we're talking about, the presence of Christ in the Old Testament and how all of Scripture meets, it points to him, meets with him. Um, I just think for, especially for any of our um, participants that are students of theology, this is a wonderful opportunity just to encourage them to be truly radical in their studies (laughs) and to not buy into this modernist idea that um, it was only the church in the second and third generation that tried to put all this stuff together. Um, uh, you know, it's, I just think it's, it is the truly the most radical thing that somebody could bring to the study of theology today is just to go back where we, I mean, we're hearing, this is, this is John. Yeah. 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 Um, basically yeah. Yeah. Oh, teaching Polycarp who teaches Irenaeus this stuff. Right. And that's a good reminder to us, yeah. even as we, as we read this, when do we see the echoes of John? And, uh, you know, the audience, thank you for joining us. We're going through slow through this thing, but I think it seems to me there's important stuff here to reflect on, because I think it does, it shows ways that we've grown over 1,800 years to appreciate it, and maybe sometimes saying, well, maybe he went, in a, uh, in the, in the next paragraph is interesting. Mm-hmm. Where he says, wherefore the Jews are gone out from God, not receiving the word of God, but imagining that they may know the Father by himself without the world, without the word, i.e., yeah. without the Son, not knowing that God. I mean, so here is Irenaeus implying that here the Jews are trying to know the Father apart from Jesus, and he's saying they can't. That's right. Um and of course, then they, they, and they, he points out as in these pages to come how they misinterpret the whole thing and turn religion into a, the observance of ritual observances, externals. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. I mean, if you think of it that way, of course, they know the Father through the Old Testament witness, but in a sense, he is saying they didn't really come to know the Father. Because the way we come to know the Father is through Jesus. Through the Son, yeah. He shows us yeah. the mercy of God, the love of God. The, we see that. And apart from that, we don't really know the fullness of him, if you will. Um, did you point out in section four um, on three twenty, page 326, um, about you know not knowing that God who in human form spake unto Abraham and again unto Moses is probably worth 
pointing out here that um, we're not talking about the incarnation here. Um, that expression in human form um, probably needs to be interpreted in a very general way, yep. made visible, perceptible, if you will. Yeah, I mean, there's a number of yeah. places in the Old Testament where, right, theologians have have posited the idea that this is Christ appearing, but not in the way he would. Uh, I, I think about, right. um, yeah, I mean, you know, you know yeah. Uh, Jacob wrestling with God. Yeah, and. You know, the later fathers, when they would when they look at those passages, typically they'll say that an angel was um, representing God in one of his form, in one of his persons. Yeah. Um, yeah, like the the, the guests know. that Lot took under his roof. Yeah. You know, who were those guys? You know, and. Uh, Right, or as you said earlier, there in in Genesis eighteen, you know, so. Uh, but that, that's a good point. You pointed that out because I jumped right over that little thing. Yeah. But you could see uh, some would in, could think that he's applying in human form. So in other words, as if we're talking about the incarnation. No, and Irenaeus would never. No, you, it's just the way that got translated. I suppose you're right. You would want to comment at the beginning if we move to page three twenty seven at the beginning of chapter. Eight, section one. Right, and it's just simply the that that begins. Vain too is Marcion and his set driving out Abraham from his inheritance, to whom the Spirit bears witness by many, and especially by Paul. And that's just again to just remind us that Marcion is probably the principal bad guy in Irenaeus's mind here, and Marcion's system takes the whole of the Old Testament and throws it in the garbage. Hmm. I mean, literally, because, because the Mar Marcion taught that the Old Testament God was literally garbage. Yep. So I just, I just thought it's worth pointing that out. To, um, he's very clear about um, what, what, what it is he's up against here. To me, that emphasizes the importance of hermeneutic. If your human, hermeneutic is wrong, you're going to end up with wrong conclusions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if, if you don't recognize that all the punishments, the things that were allowed to happen to the Israelites in the Old Testament, if you read it, you'll see that it's not a vengeful God. It's a God in a way, being forced to carry out his just punishment on very sinful people. Mm -hmm. The problem wasn't a vengeful God, it was a sinful people. And once you see that, then the message of the Old Testament is our need for holiness. Because that's what God was saying. If you'll, if you'll love me and fear me and, and follow me and worship me, then blessings. And if you don't, you're forcing me to divide you up or to bring on a plague or whatever. And that's what the Old Testament message was. It's not a bad God. It's just him saying, you're, I'm the creator, mm -hmm. you're the creatures, guys. Okay. 
Marcion didn't get that hermeneutic, though. So that's why no, he wanted to get rid of the whole thing. He wanted to get rid of the whole thing. Now, at the bottom of that section, in the middle of page 327, there's a paragraph that I wanted to, us to reflect uh -huh. on, in which he writes, It is plain, therefore, that such as deny his salvation and devise another god, and of course, that's Marcion and the gang, mm -hmm. besides him who made the promise to Abraham, are without the kingdom of God, and have lost the heritage of incorruption, annulling and blaspheming God, who brings into the kingdom of heaven Abraham and his seed, which is the church by Christ Jesus, to whom is committed both the adoption and the inheritance which is promised to Abraham. Now, Monsignor, there's a lot in that paragraph. It seems to me. Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, it, it emphasizes the importance of our belief because if, if we go off in wrong directions, we can separate ourselves from the kingdom of God and lose the inheritance of incorruption. All right. Annulling and blaspheming God who brings into the kingdom Abraham and his seed, which is the church. Now, to me, that emphasizes this idea that's in Vatican II, we have the idea of the people of God. And the people of God is this continuity, which is the church. Do you remember, um, the, this would have been a pre-Vatican II theologian just on the eve of Vatican II named Emil Mersch, M-E-R-S-C-H. He wrote a book called The Whole Christ. Well, I, I, um, I remember the title. I don't remember the was, author. And basically, it was the idea is you find the church from the very beginning. <laughs> um, the church wasn't invented at Pentecost. It was there from the very beginning. And it was a, it was a marvelous account of how we should, um, well, just what Irenaeus yeah. says here, Abraham and his seed, which is the church. And it's us. In other words, to whom is committed both the adoption and the inheritance which is promised to Abraham. So those, as Paul talks about, who've been adopted into the, the, the family. Um, uh, at the, back at, at the top of page 326, as Paul also testifies, saying that we are sons of Abraham, according to the likeness of his faith and the promise of his inheritance. Uh huh. You know, we, yeah. you know, even though it's because of our faith and not our genetic inheritance from Abraham. All right, Monsignor. Um, any other thoughts on that before we move on to the next? I, I apologize. I you got that one. Yeah. I apologize uh -huh. to the audience. And we're jumping yeah. around here, but we're trying to pull out uh, key little things. Uh, if we look to the top, Actually, we'll begin at the bottom of 328 and go to the top of 329. Right. Uh -huh. There's a section that says, And David, in God's sight, had been decreed to be a priest, although Saul was persecuting him. For every righteous king hath a priestly station. And he goes on, And again, all the Lord's apostles are priests, such as have not for inheritance either fields or houses here, but are always serving the altar and God. 
and then just jump down a little bit more. Now, who are these who left father and mother and renounced all who are nearest to them for the word of God in his covenant, but the disciples of the Lord? This whole section talks about priesthood. And, and the continuity, yeah. as you said, the continuity of the Old Testament understanding of the Levitical priesthood, Aaronic Levitical priesthood, who didn't they didn't get part of the inheritance. They had cities assigned to them because they didn't own anything. They were dependent on the community. And we're seeing that carried on to the apostles and the disciples. And uh, you, you pointed out quite rightly that um, this is, of course, the heart of the church's discipline of, of priestly celibacy is, is yeah. here. Um, yeah. These are men that left everything behind to follow the Lord. Yeah, our Lord says in the section where he talks about father and mother and leaving all that and denying that, it ends with that section in Luke chapter 14, 33, when it says, our Lord says, unless you denounce everything, you can't be my disciples. Unless you denounce everything. And that's the message he's giving to those who will follow him, who will serve him at the altar always serving at the altar in God. No inheritance, either fields or houses, here, our inheritance is in heaven. All right? So, Marcus, um, do you think I, I was now wondering, maybe I need to repent of something. Um, um, when I was teaching in Catholic seminaries, I used to tell the seminarians that they should take the money that they were given for weddings and instead of going out and spending it at the liquor store that they should put it into a 401k or 403b <laughs> or whatever it is because of the deplorable state that um, diocesan pension plans were often found themselves to be in. Perhaps I was telling them wrong. Perhaps I should have not said that because they should take no thought for all of this stuff, right? <laughs> Seems like I remember reading, who was I reading about? Maybe it was, of course, St. Francis, but it was also St. Dominic. Mm -hmm. Whenever they were given anything, they wanted to get rid of it as soon as they could. Yeah. Give it to the poor. And, I mean, who am I to speak? I've got a 401k, you know, and, and I justify it every way I can. I'm a husband and I'm a father and I've got a family and I've got a future and I won't have a salary when I'm 80 years old. I'm a, you know, and, and there we are. We're caught in, in a culture yeah. that has adopted all these um, protections, insurances. And so even the idea of of living according to that statement by our Lord. Unless you denounce everything, you can't be my disciples. We can't imagine that. So we immediately, well, that's for those few people that have that, that unique calling over there. And it's, you know, like the previous page on page 328, um, even a king, you know, these kings had priestly stations. Then he goes on basically to argue, but the apostles aren't princely. And so they shouldn't live 
princely lives. And we were talking about this um, not so long ago, weren't we, about how um, the church sometimes has fallen into a trap of um, oh. of making bishops into princes of the church and that live oh. literally like princes. Yeah. In fact, there's a, a psalm that warns about princes being called princes, and yet we it's like we didn't read that verse. You know, um, yeah. I'm trying to go back. Not long ago, we looked at um, a text from him about luxuries. Oh, on page 312. Uh -huh. I don't know if he covered this one. 312 at the bottom, section 4. A lesson of parable Lazarus. Now, oh, he, yes. he did not tell us a mere story of a poor man and a rich, but first he taught that no man ought to make pleasure his employment, that men should not so live in worldly luxuries and abundant feasting as to serve their own pleasures and forget God. You know, what a wonderful message that is for us. Yeah, and, and I do believe that over the centuries we've become so materialistic as a culture and even as a church that we don't, how many of us, when we go to confession, we could maybe list the five or six things that most people, I should ask you, what are the five or six things that most people confess? Because you're not allowed to even give those data. But if, right. you know, but how many people come in and says, I'm too materialistic? I don't hear that too often. You know, uh, yeah. I, I confess that I've not renounced very much in my life. I, you know, I haven't. I know that I haven't. I've tried to live simply. I believe it. I wrote about it in my book, Life from Our Land, and I believe it. But it's really hard. In fact, in my book, I, I, I quote that, that World War I song, How Are You Going to Keep Them Down on the Farm After They've Seen Paris? Yeah. And that song is right on. Once you've experienced materialism, it's hard to go back. Once you've experienced the comforts, it's hard I just, to go I, back. I, you know, to read this, um, what you hear here, what you are hearing, what we're hearing is, this is a real missionary bishop writing here. He's got the heart of a missionary. Um, he never lost it. I wonder how much his life as a missionary bishop is different than ours. Let's think about it. Let's let's count the ways. Um, well, his successor was martyred. Okay. <laughs> In fact, his whole presbyterate was martyred. <laughs> well, let me add a few other things. Yeah. Okay. No electricity. No air conditioning. No indoor heating. No indoor plumbing. No gas run and no, no machinery. No nonstop flights to Rome. No. So, you know, I live in the state of Ohio, and if you went back 150 years, still there were new towns popping up all over the state. Why were they mm -hmm. popping up? Because you could take five families and go out and start a community and start a community. You don't need electricity. You don't need plumbing. You don't need cars. You don't need. You could survive. We wouldn't know how to survive that way today. I know. We we, I we know. become we become so 
different. The idea of renouncing anything. We don't even think that's a part of the gospel anymore. Jesus said, and, and at the time of Irenaeus, I do believe that was still accepted as a part of the, what the gospel message was. People were willing to die for the faith rather than compromise. You know, there's a, Marcus, down the way, I, I, I didn't write down the page number, but later in chapter four, there's a wonderful moment where uh, Irenaeus says, um, you know, the, the, the Jews patted themselves on the back that they were giving their 10% tithes, but a Christian knows that it's 100%. <laughs> All of his life belongs to the Lord. And um, I don't, he just got that spirit yeah. about him, you know. Well, in, in uh, some ways, I, I would say that uh, the spirit had not yet been lost. The spirit had not yet been lost. Yeah. Now, Monsignor, I know you because you have another meeting to go to. We'll pause there, and we'll pick up next time with chapter 9. Okay. All right. We'll pick up with chapter 9, um, and we're going to get back into—we're we're encountering that word again that you talked about last time, the word subsistence. Um, and we're going to talk about the Old and the New Testament. The Old and the New Testament being of the same mode of subsistence. The Old and the New Testament being of the same mode of subsistence. And we'll pause, and we'll let you answer that the next time we're together. Okay. All right. So, how, how about okay. closing this with a, a, a very prayer. good? Okay. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for what we've been able to read from the pages of Saint Irenaeus today. Help us to recover that apostolic seal and humility and simplicity. Um, that we always put you first and we give you everything. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you, Monsignor. Thank you. And all of you, thank you for joining us on this episode of Deep in History. We remind you again, go to chnetwork.org if you haven't already to check out all the other resources, conversion stories, all the other things that happen in the Coming Home Network. And we have other podcasts. The, the John Mark's new Deep in Christ podcast is starting. And of course, we have Ken... Hensley and, and Matt doing On the Journey podcast, and we have lots of insight videos and signpost videos. I want you to check all those out. Look forward to being with you again next week. Bye.